Good morning. Let me pray and we will get started. Uh, dear God, it is, a, it is a joy to come together as, as your body, as your church and worship you. Thank you for the, the worship team leading us and, and just getting us our hearts tuned towards you. Uh, I think of the, the lyrics, God, it says, there's no one like you that we sang this morning, and that is what brings us together. That's what got us out of bed and out of our houses and to come to this place to worship together uh, as your body because there is no one like you. There is no one like you in the universe. There is one God, and that's the God that we came today to worship. Uh, So I pray for our time this morning that you would use it uh, for your glory, that you would um, just bring the truth out of your scriptures uh, into our hearts uh, so that we can see uh, what you want us to see this morning, God. We ask your blessing on this time. Uh, Amen. I see uh, a lot of new faces that I don't know, so let me introduce myself. My name is Mark, and I'm the youth pastor here at church. I'm excited to get to to preach to you guys this morning. Uh, Can I have an opening question for you? Do you ever wish you would have tried a little bit harder at school growing up? (laughs) Those of you who said no probably got A's. Those of you that didn't probably were like me. Uh, Don't you think that if you knew then, what you know now about life, you, you would have tried a, a lot harder in, in junior high and high school. Um, I remember sort of what my brain was like as I, as I went to high school and the things that I thought, and I remember thinking, you know, saying to teachers, I'm never going to read again. <laughs> I'm never going to write anything if it's not assigned to me. Uh, and you want to know what I did all week? <laughs> I read lots and lots of books and I wrote a sermon, uh, and I'm excited to get to share with you today sort of the results of, of that study. And, and for Christmas this year, I'm considering uh, putting together little note cards and sending them out to all my former teachers, just confessing all the things that I told them I would never use again that I now use on a regular basis in my job. So uh, I, was doing, I was doing my prep for, for this week and uh, you know, reading that thing I'd never do again. And uh, I was in Second Kings chapter 6, and, and one of the commentators that I was reading said, uh, that this story that we're going to look at this morning comes into like a perfect five-part drama, perfect five-act drama. And I'm, as I'm reading that, my brain started like registering and going way back, going, hey, hey, they, they tried to teach you that in high school. And then the other half of my brain fired back, emphasis on the tried part, Mark. <laughs> and thank you, Google, but I looked it up. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to break it down in that format this morning. If you have your Bibles today, uh, you can turn or scroll or swipe or however you get there, but get to 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. Uh, Pastor Eric asked uh, if I would preach this week, and he gave me the dreaded freedom of picking whatever I wanted. Uh, it may sound incredibly liberating, but it's in, in fact really stressful to me. Uh, the Bible says that it, it is all God-breathed and it's all useful, and so now I'm supposed to pick the one part that I think is more useful than the rest. Um, if, you ask, if you ask most pastors, actually picking their passage is one of the most difficult parts uh, that they do to prepare for a sermon. But I, I did pick uh, a section that we're going to be at this morning, and just to share with you my inspiration, uh, I was reading Bible stories uh, with my, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and, and we read Bible stories before we go to bed, and this was actually the story uh, that I read to her about two weeks ago, and, and that just kind of stuck in my brain, and as I was reading, and I thought, this is an awesome story, and we serve an awesome God, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. It's a story about a prophet named Elisha, uh, and Elisha is the successor uh, to one of the other really well-known prophets, Elijah. 
Uh, and I can almost guarantee you I'm going to mix that up at some point this morning. So just know mostly I'm talking about Elisha, uh, regardless of what I say. Uh, at this point in the history sort of of Israel, they're on a, a downward spiral towards their exile. And, and sort of the work of the prophets is sort of this last glimmer of hope, uh, sort of the last remnant of the faithful to God of, of Israel and, and sort of the last positive thing that's happening before their, uh, before their exile. And so that's sort of the context for where we'll pick up uh, starting in verse 8, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. And we'll look at the introduction. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. So here we kind of get the setting of what's happening. We're told that the king of Aram, maybe your translation might say, uh, the king of Syria, we're told that he's at war with Israel. And at this point, this isn't sort of traditional war where one army gets on that side and the other army gets on that side and they, they meet in the middle. Uh, this is more of, of sort of a raiding attack. So they were sort of uh, guerrilla warfare, sort of randomly attacking uh, Israel. And they're just being a, a nuisance to the nation of Israel. Uh, we actually see sort of in the story that follows this account that, uh, that the Arameans actually get their army and go and siege Samaria and sort of a little bit more of that traditional uh, warfare. And so Elisha, uh, called here the man of God, and just as a side, if, what a great nickname. Uh, if you're trying to get a nickname, I'd shoot for that one if I were you. Uh, or woman, sorry, don't want to. Um, Elisha is passing along intelligence to the king of Israel. Elisha is the Israeli counterintelligence unit, uh, and he's really good at his job. Uh, and he repeatedly uh, thwarts the attacks of the Arameans. Uh, and, and one thing, just sort of about the introduction in, in general, there's not a lot of specific details given. Uh, there's no specific dates of, of when this occurred. We're not even told the name of the two kings that are involved in the story. The only person that's named is Elisha. And it just sort of kind of gives us the idea that this is not a history lesson. This is a God lesson. And so that's the context for this morning. So then we move into the conflict of the story. Uh, Elisha's actions have not gone unnoticed by the king of Aram. And so picking up in verse 11 this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. So we see the, the king is tired of failure, uh, and his failure is so constant that, and so absolute that he assumes that there's actually a spy from within his own ranks. Uh, his officers assure him that that is not the case and, and point their finger at this prophet from Israel named Elisha. And it tells you a lot about the reputation of Elisha for it to extend beyond his own country uh, into the surrounding nations because they didn't have social media, they didn't have internet, they didn't have television. When news travels by donkey, reputation is hard to come by. Um, and, and I appreciate, I, I take 
joy in the exaggeration uh, of, the, uh, of the officer saying, he even knows what you say in your bedroom. A uh, little bit of an over-exaggeration. Uh, but the king is, is, is determined to solve this problem, so he, he orders them to find Elisha. Uh, and we're told that he wants to capture him and, and perhaps kill him or, or perhaps acquire him and, and maybe use him as his own uh, intelligence. Uh, but Elisha has just moved up and become number one on Aram's most wanted list. So horses and chariots and a strong force are sent out after Elijah, a a very excessive force to capture a single man. And there's there's a certain irony and egotism uh, in the mind of the king of Aram. Um, You just imagine him thinking, this prophet has through divine revelation known the exact plans and whereabouts of our army. He has understood things that were only spoken of in secret that no man could know. Perhaps we can sneak up on him. And so it indicates this king's lack of belief in the supernatural. Uh, Elisha has been well aware of the enemy's movements up to this point, and, and perhaps we could assume that this move comes as no surprise. Um, I would assume Elisha could have left during the night, uh, but he stayed so that God's glory could be displayed in, in this way that we're going to look at. Uh, so we move ahead, sort of the story to the next morning, and the story reaches its climax uh, starting in verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The enemy came down towards him. Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. And so the scene sort of opens up with Elisha's servant freaking out. Uh, He wakes up early and goes outside the city, the city where they're at. Uh, Dothan had two wells that were sort of outside uh, of the city. So presumably he's going out for for water in the morning. He's probably not going out for an early morning jog. Um, But he... Put yourself in his sandals for a moment, walking outside and seeing the, the hills surrounding you filled with an army. And, and he is very reasonably filled with panic and fear. And, and he is Elisha's servant. He knows what this army is there for. He knows who is their target. He knows what they're trying to do. And so he, he hurries to Elisha for help. Now, we're not given actually the name of this servant. Uh, possibly it was actually might have been a new servant that worked under, under Elisha in the chapter before Elisha's previous servant, uh, Gehazi, uh, was released from Elisha's service. And so it uh, may have been a, a new servant. And so he runs inside and he would have known uh, what Elisha's reputation was and, and what he was capable of. And so he comes in in, in a panic and, and comes to Elisha, what should we do? And Elisha responds, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And, and so stop and, and put yourself in the, in the shoes of, uh, of this servant and, and what's going on in his head right now. And, and I, I like to picture things in my mind and what I think they played out as. And I picture this servant, you know, maybe talking to Elisha or thinking to himself, Elisha, I love you. Uh, when it comes to being a prophet, you rock. Um, totally got that thing nailed. Really impressed with your work. When it comes to being a mathematician, uh, you aren't so great. Uh, I took a look outside, and right now they've got us outnumbered about 20,000 to 2. So, Elisha, your math stinks. Uh, 
I'm not going to ask you know, to raise your hand if you've heard this story before, but I'm guessing many of you are, are familiar uh, with this story, at least in some sense. Uh, and there's certainly something that can be lost when we read through these narratives and we kind of know how it plays out before we even get to the end. We don't, we don't always feel the fear and, and the nervousness and the uneasiness that was there. Um, think of you know, a murder mystery or a crime drama or anything that, that you watch on TV or, or a movie and you already know how the end is. It, it really takes something out of that. Um, so it can be easy to kind of breeze through this story and, and breeze by the utter panic and horror that this servant must have been feeling. Because um, we know how it turns out, but, but in the moment, he did not. He's not thinking, well, golly, this is going to be a bad day. Like, that's not where he's at. He's thinking, today is the day that I die. Uh, I am the assistant to the number one military asset in Israel, and there's an army outside, and they came looking for us. Uh, so, so just remember how he feels. And Elijah's response, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Now notice, Elisha did not pray for God to send an army of angels to protect them. He simply prayed for his servant to be able to see what was already there. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And quick little sort of mini theology lesson uh, about angels. We see angels playing um, several different roles throughout the Bible, several, several different functions. Um, one of the things that we see them do is they're worshipers of God. We see this uh, in the throne room uh, of God in, in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, that they're there to worship God. Uh, we see this in, in the narrative of the birth of Jesus, where the, the shepherds, um, are, are angels come to them and, and worship God to them. Uh, and, and we see angels as servants of God. Uh, we see angels delivering messages of God, being a messenger. The angel Gabriel that, that came to Mary in that same narrative uh, to tell her that she was going to have a baby, he was being a messenger. That was his role in that, in that story. Uh, we're actually told that angels attended to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that an angel uh, appeared to him and strengthened him. So they're, they're servants of God as well. And, and another role that we see angels performing is assisting and defending God's people. And that's the role that we see in this passage here today as they surround the prophet Elisha. Uh, we're told uh, in the, the story of Daniel and the lion's den that it is angels that close the mouths of the lion. Uh, famous psalmist David in, in Psalm 34 describes that angels encamp around those who fear the Lord and he delivers them. Um, so when we see the angels in this role of, of sort of security guard, this is not anything that's outside of their job description. They're not getting overtime for this. This is, this is part of, of what uh, some of the angels do. Second uh, Kings 6 is just a cool uh, opportunity that we kind of get let behind the curtain to see how God is delivering and using his angels for his glory. Uh, and so... The army, uh, unaware of sort of what's going on, that, that they can't see, proceeds with their attack and begins to come down um, after Elisha. And through, through Elisha's prayer, they are struck with blindness and the attack is thwarted. Elisha and his servant are saved, but the story is not quite over yet. Verse 19, Elisha told them, This is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria, and after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and they were there inside Samaria. 
So Elisha misleads this army that, that had been blinded and travels from the city of Dothan to Samaria. Uh, he's taking them on a fake Elisha hunt. Uh, and just for the record, I considered doing an Elmer Fudd voice saying we're hunting prophet, but I decided not to this morning, just by a little bit, because you're all thinking it in your head now. That's the great part. I didn't have to do it, but you think it. Um, and for, from what we read in the story, it describes blindness and literal blindness as certainly a possibility. But within the context of the story, I think it makes more sense to, to think of it as mental blindness or sort of confusion. Uh, Elisha leads an army on a 12-mile journey to Samaria. And just as sort of an illustration, if, if I was able to strike you all with blindness this morning, I'm not even sure if I could command you all to get out of the sanctuary. So, so to, to lead a, an army 12 miles that's blind uh, doesn't seem to, to fit the context. And, and they also follow his voice commands. He leads them through, through his voice. Uh, and a well-trained army is going to follow the lead of its commanders, uh, especially when their sight has been compromised. They're going to lean on the voices and the people that they know even more heavily. Uh, so, so for Elijah to take command of this army and lead him on a 12-mile journey, blindness um, as a description of confusion makes the most sense to me. And so Elisha uh, leads this, this army into the center of Samaria, and here we sort of see the, uh, the conclusion of the story in verse 21. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elijah, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. So what a score if you're sort of the, the king of Israel this day. Uh, it's one thing to sort of defeat your enemies in battle. It's a whole other thing to have them handed to you on a, on a silver platter in the center of your city. Uh, and you sort of see his response uh, is, is very enthusiastic. Shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And Elisha's uh, decision not to kill the prisoners is in line with what would be typical in traditional battle in those days for captured troops. Uh, the king's sort of giddiness and strange response just kind of gives you the impression that he is absolutely caught off guard and sort of overwhelmed by this opportunity that's set before him. Uh, under normal circumstances of war, sort of prisoners would be a part of the spoil. That's part of, of winning, and, and most commonly they would be taken as slaves or, or sold. Uh, so Elisha was, was more consistent with their typical treatment. Um, Elisha ordered a, a feast for the troops and then sends them on their way. Uh, they were at war, and this was a group that came to attack them. Uh, it would have been uh, certainly reasonable uh, for Elisha to, to have them uh, eliminated, uh, and they had a, a great chance to do that. Um, so the question sort of begs, why not kill them? Uh, why feed them and, and send them on their way? And I think it, it demoralizes the army. It demoralizes them. They're killed with kindness, as we might say to a child. Uh, they certainly weren't afraid of Israel's army at, at this point, but they learned they'd better be afraid of Israel's God. Um, God stepped in and, and did what Israel was incapable to do on its own. And so we see the, the, sort of the, the result of it in verse 23. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. So this, this, attack, or this approach worked. It worked for a while. If you keep reading the next verse, it starts with sometime later, and this is actually where the siege begins. And so 
Um, the king, uh, uh, the Aramean king, gets his whole army together and eventually attacks, but we're told that uh, they had stopped raiding Israel's territory. So for now, uh, war has been ceased, peace has been restored, and God spoke in a very powerful way to the nation of Israel and Syria through a prophet without having to harm a, a single life. So great story. There's some interesting uh, contrasts that I want to look at this morning uh, that I think really uh, come to the surface of this story. Uh, the first one that I want to look at is, is the contrast between blindness and vision. And, and blindness represented by Elisha's servant. When, when all that he was able to see was the army that was before him and, and the things that, that, that were in front of his eyes, the impending doom was sort of all that he could see. He was blinded to what God was doing. And then the, the contrast of vision, Elisha's servant, after uh, Elijah prays for his eyes to be open, and he's able to see the angels that were already there encamped around them and, and were ready to protect Elijah and himself. We see a contrast between the, the plans of man and the, and the plans of God. Uh, man's plans represented by the king of Aram. He thought he could sort of outstrengthen God, that, that when God thwarted his plans, his response was to flex his muscle and simply try harder to send more troops, to find the head of the enemy and attack it, to, to look for an advantage and capitalize. We see God's plans very different, represented by Elijah. Through kindness, his plans resulted in a period of peace. Uh, there is more to this world than having the biggest army. And The things in, in this world that we look at for strength and security, the, the things that give us a sense of control, God must laugh at. Our money, our our health, our abilities, our skills, our talents, our position of authority. These don't come from us. These come from God. And we can either find comfort in the fact that God really is in control, or we can be freaked out by the fact that God really is in control, but none of it changes the fact that God really is in control. We see a contrast between revenge and generosity. Revenge, represented by the king of Israel, when presented with a favorable opportunity for his country, wanted to take things uh, and turn the tables. He wanted to respond significantly beyond what would have been the normal retribution. Uh, And our culture would probably call this being opportunistic and would applaud it. The generosity displayed by Elijah, when presented with a favorable opportunity, showed kindness where it wasn't warranted. And not only the kindness of simply not murdering them, he went so far as to cook them a nice Thanksgiving dinner so they didn't have to walk home on an empty stomach. Our culture would probably call this weakness and look down upon it. And and sort of the biggest contrast that I I want to spend time on this morning, the last one, uh, is the contrast between fear and faith. Fear represented by Elisha's servant. We're not told exactly how long he had worked for Elijah and and, and what miracles he had seen or anything like that. But even the Arameans were aware of Elisha's reputation, so surely his servant knew what this man was capable of. And I don't want to, I'm not harassing this servant uh, for being afraid. I'm going to be real honest with you. I've never had an army surround me. Uh, I've never been attacked like that, so I can't look at him and say that I would have responded any differently. Uh, I've encountered much less in my life and been scared before, so fear, uh, I understand that that's a reasonable conclusion. Um, It's not that. What I'm questioning about him is his response to that fear. His response was, Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? Elisha, how are we going to solve the problem? How are you going to get us through this? I think the correct question is, 
What is God going to do? We see faith represented by Elisha. And, and I want to be careful as we go through the story not to read things into the story that we're not told. Uh, there's many details that we don't know specifically. We don't know when Elisha became aware um, of the army's plan to attack. We don't know when Elisha became aware of the angels that were surrounding him. We don't know when Elisha became aware of the plan to blind them and hike with them 12 miles and share a drumstick with them. We don't know all those things. But regardless of those answers, what we do know, Elisha knew God was faithful and in control. He had witnessed it in the ministry of Elijah before him. He had witnessed it in his own ministry now that he was the main prophet of Israel. Elisha knew that the plans and the power of God supersede any plans and the power of men. Now, I've never done a a miracle like Elisha. I doubt that that you have either. Um, There's not a lot of direct similarities between me and Elisha, and I imagine you you feel the same way. We live in a different time. Uh, There's so many many things that are different. And so maybe you come to a story like this and say, that's all interesting and, and fine, but what's this have to do with me? And I think it's important to find the commonality, what we do have in common with Elijah. We serve the same God that Elijah served, who is just in as much control and power and authority as he was in the time of Elisha. God has not gotten weaker since the time of the prophets. God is the same God. Trusting in his faithfulness uh, is something that Elijah did, and it's something that we can do. It's something that we have in common. Not letting the, the fear that we encounter in life interrupt our faith in the one true God. If you want to turn forward in your Bibles to Isaiah 43 with me, um, there's a passage there that that reminds us of the faithfulness of God. Isaiah 43, picking up in verse 1. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And focus here on verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And skip down to verse 5. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Now, in this context, these words were spoken to the nation of Israel. That's true, but they are, they are no less true for his bride, for his church, for his children. These words ring just as true to us today as they did to Israel back then. And when trouble is spoken of in the Bible, when, when hard times are spoken of, we don't see the word if, we see the word when. Verse 2 again, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Jesus gave the same advice when he was here. John 16:33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Maybe your response to this, you could say, God, I'd have a much stronger faith if I didn't find myself in these difficult spots all the time. How about a little preemptive defense on your part? Uh, There's a a saying, maybe you've heard it, I know God won't give me anything I can't handle, I just wish he didn't trust me so much. 
I came across this quote from W.A. Criswell that, that gives sort of a perspective on God's use of trouble and difficulties in our lives. And it goes like this. I am not less loved of God, nor am I thrust from his presence because I am troubled, poor, sick, or needy. It is in those difficulties and trials that I most sense the presence and encouragement of God. If one never experiences a broken heart and never knows fierce trials, he will never have the experience of the real nearness of God. Now, I'm not here this morning to explain away all the hard times in your life, to tell you that the things that hurt don't really hurt as bad as they feel like they do to you. I'm not here to explain what God is doing through that. My goal this morning is to remind you that in those moments, God has not left us. God's faithfulness continues regardless of our circumstances. How will you approach the ups and downs of life knowing that the faithful God of this universe that spoke creation into existence promises to walk alongside you during each and every one of them? 2 Kings 6, 16, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Isaiah 43, 5, do not be afraid, I am with you. May you have eyes to see with faith what God is doing through all circumstances that you encounter. Let me pray for you. God, it would not take long to talk to many people to find um, a lot of hurt and a lot of trouble and a lot of problems in our lives, God. Um, It is not an easy go here on earth. God, give us eyes to see what you're doing. Give us a heart that is quick to respond in faith instead of fear. God, help us to see what you're doing when what we see with our normal eyes doesn't make sense, God. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that you never change, you never leave, and you're not going anywhere. God, you didn't put us here and say good luck. You put us here and said, I've got your back. Let us be people that remember that and live with that truth. Amen.